is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clotty, and here's what's coming up. So immediately the ball end, I saw people, you know, trying to jump over, you know, the barricade, trying to jump over into the main boat itself. People throwing bottle water and all of those stuff. That was Kelvin Sunday, who witnessed last night's riot after Nigeria failed to qualify for the World Cup and angry fans stormed the pitch. And all this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Tunisia state-run TV says President Kai Saeed dissolved parliament yesterday, eight months after suspending it. In a televised address, he described an online meeting by some deputies as an attempted coup and said he was acting to preserve the state and preserve its institutions. The latest blow to the North African country's young democracy came after U.S. Undersecretary of State for Democracy and Human Rights, Uzra Zaya, concluded a four-day visit to Tunisia. She underscored the importance of strengthening democracy and implementing an inclusive political and economic reform. Radwan Masmoudi, president of Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shinawi the U.S. message to the Tunisian president. I think this visit by the undersecretary was very timely to make it clear to the Tunisian government that uh, the United States government does not accept the illegal and unconstitutional coup that was organized by President Qaisi Saeed on July 25. I think in the beginning, people had the hopes that uh, Qaisi Saeed will respect the constitution, will make some changes, but within the constitution and by respecting the laws and the constitution of Tunisia. However, in the last eight months, he has made it very clear that he has no intention of respecting the constitution and that he intends, in fact, to write a new constitution by a committee that he wants to appoint. And I think the U.S. Congress has made it clear that it opposes giving any assistance to Tunisia, whether military or economic, until Tunisia resumes its democratic process. And that includes reopening the parliament and allowing all the democratic institutions to resume their normal work according to the laws and the constitution of Tunisia. Over the course of her visit, under Secretary Zia met with senior government officials in Tunisia, and in her meetings, the undersecretary underscored U.S. concern for Tunisia's democratic trajectory and the importance of inclusive political and economic reforms that gives civil society a strong voice. Would that pressure the Tunisian president to change his course? I think that there is mounting pressure from the United States, but not only from the United States, from the international community as a whole and from all the democratic nations of the world. On President to go back to respecting the laws and the constitution of Tunisia. And I think that Qaisi Saeed now has no choice either to back down and to go back to respecting the constitution or that he will find himself increasingly isolated inside Tunisia itself where there is mounting opposition to the coup and to Qaisi Saeed and outside of Tunisia from the international community. And Tunisia today finds itself in a very 
very bad economic situation where it desperately needs economic assistance from the International Monetary Fund, from the World Bank, and from major international donors. And now the international community has made it clear that that assistance to Tunisia is in fact conditional upon return to democracy and the restoration of all democratic institutions. Under Secretary Zia also called for an independent judiciary as key to a strong and healthy democracy and urged the government to cease trying civilians in military courts and prosecution of individuals for peaceful freedom of expression. Could such a message contribute to a change in the Tunisian government's statement of opposition figures? Yes, I think so, because this is the first time that we hear such a clear message from the Biden administration opposing the steps taken by Qais Saeed to undermine democracy. These three or four steps that were mentioned specifically by uh, Undersecretary Zia are very clear violations of the democratic principle because Qais Saeed wants to control not only the executive branch, but also wants to control the legislative branch and the judicial branch. And I think now this is the first time that we hear such a clear statement from the U.S. administration opposing these measures and demanding that these measures be undone and that uh, the uh, judicial system be free and independent of any interference from the executive branch and also an end and using military courts against civilians and against opposition members for simple crimes such as expressing opposition to the coup. Now people are being tried in military courts because they criticize the president. And of course, this is totally unacceptable. That was Radwan Masmoudi, president of Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shinari. Nigerian football authorities have refuted reports that a Zambian Confederation of African Football or CAF official died of injuries sustained during a riot that took place during Tuesday's World Cup qualifier between Ghana and Nigeria. Violence erupted in the stadium after Nigeria failed to qualify for the World Cup and angry fans stormed the pitch. As Timothy Obiezo reports from Abuja, the cause of the football official's death is under investigation. The Nigerian Football Federation confirmed the death of the Zambian CAF official Joseph Kabungo in a statement Tuesday. But it said Nigerian newspaper reports that Kabungo died of injuries sustained from a beating and stampede are false. NFF General Secretary Mohamed Sanusi said Kabungo was found gasping for air near a locker room as officials were testing players for illegal doping. He said the official was taken to a hospital but died soon afterward. NFF did not respond to VOA's calls for further comment, but the Football Federation of Zambia had earlier suggested that the medical doctor died of possible cardiac arrest. Nigeria's Super Eagles Tuesday crashed out of the 2022 FIFA World Cup slated for November this year after losing to the Ghanaian team in Abuja. Angry Nigerian fans invaded the pitch and vandalized facilities while thousands scrambled to leave the stadium. Eyewitness Kelvin Sunday described the incident as chaotic. So immediately the ball and I saw people, you know, trying to jump over, you know, the barricade, trying to jump over into the membo itself. People throwing bottled water and all of those stuff. Some observers like Busayo Tosin say Nigeria losing the game was not the only trigger for the violence. Two days ago, there was an attack at the airport. 
yesterday another attack over an hour and some people have been attacked. It's demand supposed to be a moment of consolidation for Nigerians. But with this result, well, our tragedy continues. Sports experts and analysts say Nigeria could face serious sanctions for Tuesday's unsportsmanlike behavior in a possible ban. Daniel Aderie is a sports journalist and analyst at Nigeria's National Television Authority. While FIFA has not come out to state anything officially, they will definitely take a stand. One thing is certain for sure, the fans will be banned following the whole violence. Aside that, there will be fines, you know, it will be fined heavily as much as $50,000 to $100,000. The 60,000-seat Moshi Dabiola Stadium was packed to overcapacity on Tuesday. By one estimate, there were 100,000 people. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. At least seven people drowned in central Nigeria when their canoe capsized while they were fleeing raids by criminal gangs. An emergency services official said the passengers were fleeing villages in Munya district yesterday when their overloaded boat sank in the Guni Zumba River. Several people are reported to have been injured or are missing. Northwest and central Nigeria are a hub of heavily armed criminal gangs who raid villages, killing and abducting residents. Meanwhile, the medical charity Doctors Without Borders, known as MSF, said five employees who were kidnapped more than a month ago in northern Cameroon had been released in Nigeria. MSF told the French news agency AFP that the five who were seized on February 24 at Fotokol, a border area that frequently suffers jihadist attacks, have been taken to a safe place but gave no details. Two of the workers were Cameroonian security guards and the other three were from Chad, Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire. Amnesty International says Libyan authorities must order an end to the persecution of youths by militiamen and security agents under the guise of protecting Libyan and Islamic values and uphold their right to freedom of expression. That demand came after the publication of alarming videos in which detainees confess under apparent duress to spreading contempt for Islam and to communicating with foreign organizations, including Amnesty International. Reporter Angie Omar spoke with Hussein Bayomi, Egypt and Libya researcher at Amnesty International, about the video that prompted the group to respond. So the first uh, videos that uh, prompted us uh, to respond has been on video shared by the internal security agency on their Facebook on um, the 21st of December 2021. And basically, it showed a person, you know, quote-unquote, admitting to spreading uh, atheism in Libya and so on. And what, what happened is that following this video, we started to see more and more videos, one of which a young man saying that he was communicating with me and apparently this was presented to the public in Libya as a matter of spreading atheism and again quoting the ISA calling for the absolute freedom for women, apparently a crime in Libya. Amnesty International statement said the internal security agency's release of video confessions is a flagrant violation of fair trial rights, including the right not to self-incriminate. This unlawful and reckless move has incited hate against a group of Libyans daring to peacefully express their views. Can you elaborate? The internal security agency were doing is that they were coercing people to confess to, again, quote-unquote crimes, because these are not crimes as recognized by international law, to doing uh, these acts basically.
basically now they have forced them to do that without the presence of a lawyer, uh, where they were in a condition amounting to a forced disappearance as they were not in communication with anyone on the outside world. And therefore, this was an attempt to undermine the right to fair trial by getting these confessions and by putting them publicly so to further discredit them to the public now it's imperative under any legal system that the prosecution and the authorities should completely disregard any confessions that were given under duress as in this case when you ask the libyan authorities to protect activists and ensure that both national and international organizations are able to work freely and without fear of reprisals and to stop the isa's campaign against people who peacefully exercise their human rights. Now, Libya has two rival prime ministers. Which one is your call directed at? Our call is directed to the Libyan authorities and those in effective control over you know, these bodies. And so by law, this uh, the internal security agency is, is subject to the oversight of the prime minister office. Now, regardless of the, who that person is, this is beyond the remit of Amnesty International. Our call is directed to the person who actually exercised that effective control. And our call is very clear is that they should first... Uh, instruct them to halt this campaign and ensure that those detained are released and open an investigation into the abuses committed by the internal security agency and doing so suspending its leader uh, pending the investigation. That was Hussein Bayoumi, Egypt and Libya researcher at Amnesty International speaking with reporter Angie Omar. You are listening to African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. Ethiopia's federal authorities and rebels in the Tigray region are accusing each other of blocking aid deliveries to Tigray that had been agreed to a week ago. The ongoing fighting comes as the U.S. ambassador to Ethiopia visited the Afar region where the aid trucks have been held up. Gelmo Dawid reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Days after announcing a humanitarian truce, the Ethiopian government accused the Tigray People's Liberation Front of blocking trucks carrying critical food aid to Tigray. More than 40 trucks were due to depart this week from Samara, capital of Afar region. But a government statement says the trucks have not slept because Abala Road is closed to traffic by TPLF forces. In its own statement, the TPLF said nothing about the trucks but said the government is not committed to implementing the truce it announced, mainly the delivery of humanitarian aid to Tigray. Writing on Twitter, Kendia Gabrahiot, a member of the Tigray regional government, accused the Ethiopian authorities in Addis Ababa of deception and criticized the international community for welcoming the truce without ensuring the government would follow through. Speaking on TPLF media, Geta Choreda, the head of external affairs for Tigray regional government, said tens of thousands of people in Tigray are on brink of starvation. He said the region's population needs urgent, unfettered access to food aid. Meanwhile, Tracy Jacobson, the U.S. ambassador to Ethiopia, visited the Afar region on Thursday. The ambassador met with Afar regional president Awel Arba and community members to discuss fighting, which has spilled over from Tigray into Afar. According to the U.S. embassy in Addis Ababa, Jacobson pledged continued support from the U.S. toward the region's recovery, including direct humanitarian aid for those displaced by the conflict. It said that in 2022 alone, the U.S. committed more than $90 million for development of the region and urgent humanitarian aid. Gelmo Dawit for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. 
U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is wrapping up a three-nation tour of the Middle East and North Africa with an appeal for Algeria to limit its ties to Russia and look to improve relations with neighboring Morocco. After meeting with top Algerian officials on Wednesday, Blinken said the Ukraine conflict should cause all countries to re-evaluate relations with Russia and express support for the territorial integrity of other states. Algeria is locked in a bitter dispute with Morocco over the status of the former Spanish colony of Western Sahara. It opposes a Moroccan plan to retain control of the territory while granting it semi-autonomous status. The United States has praised the plan as serious, realistic and credible, but has not explicitly endorsed it as the path to a resolution. Hackers have launched a successful cyber attack on one of South Africa's biggest credit bureaus, obtaining personal details of almost every one of the country's 60 million citizens. Cybersecurity experts say criminals could use the information, which includes ID and passport numbers, to defraud people. The hackers are also threatening to release what they call embarrassing details about prominent South Africans, including politicians and celebrities. Darren Taylor reports. The South African branch of the Global TransUnion Credit Bureau says a group of hackers, apparently based in Brazil, gained access to its server last week. They are called NaughtySec. They communicated with us. They obviously detected our skepticism, and so they have been providing samples of the data that they've stolen to try and prove that it is indeed them. Jan Vermeulen is editor of the My Broadband technology website. He says the hackers emailed him a few days ago to explain their audacious attack. When they probed the TransUnion network, these attackers said that they found that there was a user account that had a very poor password. In fact, the password was password. That gave them entry into the file server and that allowed them to download over four terabytes of TransUnion's data. According to these attackers, that includes a Department of Home Affairs database of 54 million South Africans, so basically everyone with an ID number in South Africa. The TransUnion server held credit information from banks, insurance firms, cellular phone firms, among others. Vermeulen says the information is now most definitely in the wrong hands. He adds that the criminal's threat to expose sensitive details about the financial affairs of well-known South Africans followed TransUnion's refusal to pay a ransom. They are demanding 15 million US dollars payable in cryptocurrency, with TransUnion refusing to pay the ransom or extortion demand. They are now trying to get attention on the case by threatening senior political leaders in South Africa. That includes President Cyril Ramaphosa, Julius Malema. Um, South Africa's information regulator is also demanding TransUnion explain how hackers managed to steal personal details of millions of citizens. Information that was supposed to be ultra-secure with apparent ease. If after an investigation it is found that TransUnion was negligent, then they could face a 10 million rand fine or even criminal prosecution. Details now in the hands of criminals include private citizens' phone numbers, email and physical addresses, marital status, names of employers and banks, and vehicle finance contract numbers. 
TransUnion acknowledges criminals could use personal information to trick victims into disclosing confidential banking details, potentially allowing crime groups to plunder their accounts. Fermilion warns it'll be difficult to prove that someone's bank account was fraudulently accessed directly as a result of the data leak at TransUnion. The recourse for consumers, unfortunately, must come from the information regulator. The information regulator must hold institutions to account that recklessly handle people's personal information. He says in an increasingly connected world, there's no such thing as personal information anymore. The steps that consumers can take to protect themselves, ironically, is through things like credit bureaus, where you can subscribe to services that will let you know if someone tries to apply for credit in your name fraudulently. The other thing to do is just to be extremely cautious. If somebody contacts you and they've got your ID number, don't assume that they're legitimate because your ID number is basically available for anyone on the internet now. Technology experts have been warning for years that both South Africa's public and private sectors haven't been taking cybersecurity seriously enough and that their systems are easy to hack into. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa and his entire cabinet last night survived two motions of no confidence filed against them by two political parties. The African Transformation Movement Party wanted Ramaphosa out of office, alleging wrongdoing in the way he raised funds for his campaign to become president of the ruling African National Congress in 2017. On the other hand, the Democratic Alliance Party wanted the entire cabinet to go for failing to execute their constitutional duties in their portfolios. Thuso Komalo reports from Johannesburg. The vote of no confidence against President Ramaphosa was scheduled to be the first to be tabled and debated in Parliament. However, when he was given the chance to table the motion, the African Transformation Movement Member of Parliament, Violetu Zungula, asked for the motion to be postponed until the court ruled on their application to have a secret ballot on the motion. There is conflict or disagreement between us as a party and you as a speaker on the method of voting, and that is before the courts. We can't proceed in this motion and vote, whereas the method of voting, it is still subject to judicial review. While other parties supported the postponement of the motion, others like Ahmed Munzo Sheikh Imam from the National Freedom Party objected. This matter was struck off the roll. So it does not exist as a matter or an application currently. Now, based on that, uh, uh, Honorable Speaker, it simply means that ATM is not willing to move it today. After a heated debate, the Speaker ruled to postpone the motion. Democratic Alliance Party leader John Stein Hessen tabled the motion against the entire cabinet. This cabinet has failed to make South Africa a viable place in which to operate a business and to employ people. The motion was resoundingly supported by opposition parties during the debate. They accused the cabinet of being corrupt and failing to protect the masses from poverty, inequality and unemployment. However, the ruling African National Congress Deputy Chief Whip Doris Tlakute objected, accusing the Democratic Alliance of attempting to bring back apartheid rule. The architect 
and proponents of South Africa's poverty and inequality are waging a concerted onslaught against our leaders in an effort to keep intact old patterns of social, political and economic power. Finally, it was time to vote and Deputy Speaker Lechesa Tenoli announced the results. The outcome are as follows. There's one abstention, 131 yes and 231 no. The motion is therefore not agreed to. Ramaphosa is seeking a second term when his first five years end in 2024. However, the division within his ruling party has made his path a bumpy one, although in parliament it seems he still commands the majority vote. Tusokumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For all latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the voice of America.